Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. The Center of Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. All right, so welcome to our first in-person colloquia for the year. We are very happy to have Dr. Peters with us in person from Los Angeles. He uh, came here for the Houston weather. We're glad to have her and have her back. If you don't know her, she was a one-time student of the center and is now a professor at Loyola Marymount. She has several interests, but she focuses a lot and her dissertation was on Avicenna. And so today we're in for a treat, uh, Avicenna on principles and different kinds of principles and knowledge. So we look forward to that. Thank you, Dr. Osborne, and thank you all of you who were able to come both in person and to join us remotely. Uh, this is one of the rare instances in which I can say, yes, I did come to Houston for the weather. <laughs> You've been following the news in California. In any event, though, I'm very pleased to be back with you all, especially in Jones Hall, which I've never stood on the stage before, although I've heard many talks in this environment. Uh, to begin, Avicenna and Thomas Aquinas on the twofold division of common principles. Knowledge in the sense of episteme, later rendered ilm in Arabic and scientia in Latin, is distinguished as knowledge of a thing in terms of its causes, arrived at through demonstrations of some things' essential attributes. The goal of attaining knowledge was shared across the intellectual world of the Middle Ages. It did not discriminate between East and West, nor between the specific investigation of Islamic, Jewish, and Christian thinkers. Often, indeed, this seeking for episteme fostered robust intellectual partnership, the clarifications of one thinker being critiqued, modified, or adopted by others. In the present study today, I would like to consider one such instance of this exchange by examining the twofold division of common principles in the physics of the healing by Avicenna and its later implementation by Thomas Aquinas. These two figures, mindful of the importance of causes for acquiring knowledge, were keenly aware of the manifold variety of causes, not just the generally Aristotelian fourfold division into material, formal, efficient, and final cause, but also the numerous modes that can pertain to any given cause, such as a cause being essential or accidental, actual or potential, common or specific, etc. A necessary step toward attaining knowledge for both Avicenna and Thomas is identifying the kind of cause that can constitute it. Both maintained that knowledge, if it was to be true knowledge, needed to be common in some sense. The central importance of common causes for achieving ilm prompted Avicenna to distinguish the way a cause can be common, either by predication or by causality. Now this is, I should note, in contrast to, dis to distinguishing a common cause from say, a particular cause, both causes common by predication and common by causality are common. Originally aimed at distinguishing the kind of common cause investigated by physics and metaphysics respectively, Avicenna maintains that physics is restricted to causes that are common by predication, while metaphysics considers causes that are common by causality. Though Avicenna himself primarily used this distinction to distinguish physical and metaphysical causal investigation, Thomas Aquinas would apply this distinction to a variety of issues. Today, I will begin with a presentation of Avicenna's account of the causes in the physics of the healing. 
While he maintains that both physics and metaphysics aim at achieving causal knowledge of their subject, Avicenna drew a sharp line between these two disciplines. Natural philosophy considers causes that are common by predication, but causes common by causality must await metaphysics. From there, I will turn to see the distinction between causes that are common by predication and common by causality directly. First, this distinction in general. Second, the specific kind of commonality of agent and end. And because this distinction is applicable to all the causes, the commonality of matter and form. Armed with an understanding of this distinction and its application, I will outline its adoption and implementation by Thomas Aquinas, beginning with his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, turning to his De Veritate, and ending with his commentaries on the physics of Aristotle and the De Trinitate of Boethius. Causality in the physics of the healing. The causes are of central importance to the science of nature for Avicenna because scientific knowledge, ilum, is a knowledge of a thing in terms of its causes. Some of the causes, matter and form, constitute the subject of this science, namely the sensible body, while others, agent and end, are needed to account for motion. Each of the causes are principles of the subject of physics because they are necessary precursors or conditions for a natural thing coming to exist and continuing in existence. Considered in these ways then, it is impossible to come to an understanding of natural beings apart from the causes. These principles for Avicenna must be known if we are un to understand their effects. As such, the natural philosopher must identify each of the four because each pertains to natural beings. For Avicenna, failure to account for any of the causes would result in inadequate knowledge of the natural being and would not yield ilum. The first causes Avicenna treats are matter and form, the causes that are constitutive of the natural body. He introduces them by an analogy, quote, one of them is like the wood of the bed, while the other is like the form or shape of the bed. What is like the wood of the bed is called material, subject, matter, component, and element, according to various considerations, whereas what is like the form of the bed is called form, end quote. He returns to matter a few paragraphs later and identifies it more precisely as the principle of potentiality in the natural thing. Here, Avicenna outlines five related but distinct meanings that matter can convey, moving from the more general to the more specific. But all of these meanings, which are less important for our present purposes, understand matter as a principle of potentiality. Form, by contrast, is the principle of actuality. As he explains, quote, the form taken as one of the principles is relative to what is composed of it and the matter, namely, that it is a part of it that necessitates its being actual in its instance, whereas the matter is a part that does not necessitate its being actual. For the existence of the matter is not sufficient for the actual generation of something, but only for something's potential generation. So the thing is not what it is through the matter, rather it is through the existence of the form that something becomes actual." End quote. Like his consideration of matter, Avicenna also presents a variety, of, a variety of meanings that form can convey before settling on the one of greatest interest to the natural philosopher, namely the form that makes matter to subsist, or in other terms, its substantial form. Avicenna then turns to agent and end, introducing them like matter and form in reference to the sensible body. As he explains, quote, the body also has additional principles, an agent and an end. The agent is that which impresses the form belonging to bodies into their matter, thereby making the matter subsist through the form and from the form and the matter, making the composite subsist 
where the composite acts by virtue of its form and is acted upon by virtue of its matter. The end is for the sake of which these forms are impressed into the matters, end quote. Agent for Avicenna is the cause that renders matter subsistent through form, while end is that for the sake of which the agent acts. Given the relatively brief discussion of the causes here in Book 1, Chapter 7, Avicenna returns to them in Book 1, Chapter 10, before considering their relation to each other in Book 1, Chapter 11. Avicenna then continues to treat the causes in Physics of the Healing, Chapter 11, by considering how they relate to one another. Briefly put, agent and end are reciprocally causal inasmuch as the agent acts for an end, and the end is that which makes the agent to act at all. Matter and form are related to each other inasmuch as they are constitutive principles of natural beings, both depending on the other for their subsistence. Agent and end are also related to the matter and form composite inasmuch as the agent is needed to bring the composite about. And as we would see later in Metaphysics of the Healing 6.1, it is needed to maintain the being in existence. Having presented each of the causes and their relation to each other, Avicenna concludes his exposition by showing their various divisions in Physics of the Healing Book 1, Chapter 12. Here he outlines five paired divisions, maintaining that a cause can be essential or accidental, proximate or remote, specific or general, particular or universal, simple or complex. It is in these divisions that one sees the intricacies of Avicenna's theory of causality, a richness that would be missed, by the way, if one only considered the causes as they are presented in his later Metaphysics of the Healing. Preceding the specific treatments of the causes in the Physics of the Healings, however, there is the distinction between causes that are common by predication and common by causality all the way back in Chapter 2. The placement of this distinction shows, I believe, its great importance to Avicenna for launching the science of physics in a way that distinguishes physics from metaphysics while affirming that both sciences are concerned with common causes in some way. Let us now turn to this distinction. <clears throat> the question of common principles is, as I have said, important to physics because it is by identifying what is common to all natural beings that one can mount demonstrations that are revelatory of the subject in this way, providing certain knowledge of natural beings. Avicenna launches physics by situating it in relation to metaphysics and identifying its subject clearly as the sensible body insofar as it is subject to change, that is, a whole and composite being. He then identifies the principles of physics via an analysis of the subject, not motion, in contradistinction to Aristotle, identifying matter, form, agent, and end in turn. Each of these are per se principles, either entering directly into the composition of the being, matter and form, or accounting for natural change, ancient and end. To these, Avicenna adds a fifth, privation, to account for change, because unless the natural being lacked something, it would not actually undergo change. Principles are required starting points for Avicenna for the science, and they are the means of arriving at scientific knowledge. Once one grasps the principle of the subject, one can demonstrate its concomitants, and in this way, attain new knowledge. As Avicenna explains, natural things have principles, reasons, and causes without which the science of physics could not be attained. And thus, the only way to acquire genuine knowledge of these things possessing principles is, first, to know their principles, and from their principles to know them. For this is the way to teach and learn that gives us access to the genuine knowledge of things that possess principles. Throughout his identification of principles, Avicenna is concerned with showing how they are common. This is because the science of nature is concerned with showing what is truly said of all natural beings. 
while he is not uninterested in specific knowledge of natural things, the order of investigation nonetheless begins with what is common before moving to the more particular. As he puts it, the principles of common things must first be known in order that common things be known, and the common things must first be known in order to know the specific things. There are then, for him, in his view, two ways that a cause can be common. In one way, it is common by causality. This kind of common cause is numerically distinct, is a numerically distinct being with multiple effects. This commonality is a commonality in reality then, as the cause exists as an individual. In another way, a cause can be common by its generality, or as Avicenna often refers to it, and as I will refer to it in this presentation, common by predication. This kind of common cause is not numerically distinct, but rather refers to a singular aspect that can be predicated of multiple individuals. This then is a logical commonality. As it concerns something that can be predicated of existent things, it is not a thing itself. As Avicenna explains, quote, the difference between the two is that in the first sense, common denotes a determinately existing entity that is numerically one and which the intellect indicates that it cannot be said of many. Whereas in the second sense, common does not denote a single determinately existing entity in reality, but an object of the intellect that applies to many that are common in the intellect in that they are agents or ends. And so this common thing is predicated of many." End quote. Though applicable to other lines of causality, this distinction is most important for efficient causality, as it allowed Avicenna to draw a clear line between physics and metaphysics. Physics treats causes that are common by predication, while metaphysics deals with causes that are common by causality. The investigation of such a common cause culminates for him in proof of the existence of God, the necessary existent, who is the singular existent ultimately causing the existence of all other things. Applying this distinction to agent and end, Avicenna explains that first in one way, the agent can be common insofar as it is the first cause. As he explains, quote, producing the first actuality from which all other actualities flow, end quote. The end can likewise be common in this way if there is one end towards which all natural things tend. In both cases, there is an individual being, agent or end, that is common by its causality, efficient or final. In both cases, there is a singular cause with many effects. In another second way, both agent and end can be said to be common by their generality, that is common by predication. In this way, there is not just one being that is an agent or end, rather there are many particular beings of which agent or end can be predicated. The end that is common by causality for Avicenna is a singular being that with multiple effects, uh, a singular being with multiple effects, effects that exceed the consideration of natural philosophy. This is because the agent that is common by causality is the cause also of the existence of a being, not just of its motion. When speaking of natural agents and natural ends in physics then, what Avicenna has in mind are commonalities of predication, the way in which agent and end can be said of all natural beings. While agents that are common by predication are investigated by the natural philosopher, and indeed Avicenna defines nature itself as a kind of efficient cause, an agent common by causality is the concern properly of the metaphysician as this agent is the cause not only of material beings, but of all beings, and thus its effects extend beyond the scope of natural philosophy. In metaphysics, then, Avicenna will later use the finitude of causes 
to argue for the existence of a first and uncaused necessary existence, a cause that is common by causality and stands outside the natural order. Efficient causality thus is considered by both the natural philosopher and the metaphysician, but their interest for Avicenna in this cause differ. While the division between principles common by causality and common by predication is used, as I've said, especially to treat efficient and to some extent final causes, it is applicable to all the principles of nature. Having used this division in physics of the healing one, two, to present agent and end, Avicenna utilizes it in chapter four to explain matter, form, and privation, again emphasizing the importance of common principle to the overall science of physics. As he maintains there, quote, since our inquiry is about common principles only, we should inquire into which of the two aforementioned ways these three common principles, that is matter, form, and privation, are common. Beginning with matter, Avicenna asserts that material bodies can either be generable and corruptible or not. The material of generable and corruptible bodies gain or lose forms temporally for him while the material of non-generable and non-corruptible bodies are eternally conjoined. Matter common by causality would be a singular material cause of many things, but he objects matter that is susceptible to non-corruptible forms is not susceptible to corruptible forms and vice versa. It is impossible then for him for there to be one matter that is common by causality. Matter can though be common by predication inasmuch as there are aspects of matter truly predicable of all material things, potentiality, for example. Matter as a principle of the thing that is receptive to form and from which a natural thing is generated is the common matter of concern to physics, a matter common by predication. A consideration of matter that is common by causality is, like the agent and common by causality, properly the concern of metaphysics. Turning to form, Avicenna again begins by entertaining the suggestion that natural beings have a form that is common by causality. In such a case, this common form would be numerically one and shared by all natural things. A possible candidate for such a common form might be the form of corporeality, as this is for Avicenna what makes a natural thing to be a body. Consequently, the form of corporeality is possessed in some way by all natural things. But, if there is one common form for all natural things, then one runs into the problem of how to explain natural diversity and multiplicity, and further, the problem of how this common form remains even through substantial changes, something that would directly undercut Avicenna's view of change. Cognizant of these problems, Avicenna denies that the form of corporeality is common in the first sense. If it were, then it would have to be numerically unique and a subsistent form. But such a view of form goes against his account of natural hylomorphic unity, as Kara uh, Richardson and Abraham Stone, for example, have clearly shown. For Avicenna, the form of corporeality is a way to identify an aspect of natural things that actually exists in tandem with their substantial forms and accidental features. This form, then, the form of corporeality, is neither a substantial form nor one that is common by causality. There cannot be a numerically distinct form for Avicenna that remains throughout substantial change because substantial change is precisely a change in form. He thus determines that there cannot be a form that is common by causality. Nonetheless, like his treatment of matter and agent and end, there is a sense of form that is common by predication, namely a disposition acquired by matter that is a principle of actuality within the natural thing. 
A final point of consideration in this discussion of commonality is privation. Avicenna quickly dismissed the suggestion that it could be common in the first sense, that is, common by causality. As he explains, quote, it is clearly altogether impossible that there be a common privation in the first sense. That is because this privation is the privation of something, X, that regularly comes to be through a process of generation. And if it is such, then it is likely that X will be generated. And so at that time, this privation will no longer remain. However, it is in that case, however, it is not something common, end quote. Privation is by definition, the absence of something. And when this something comes about, then the privation is gone. Privation furthermore is not simply an absence, but lack of some form that the natural thing has the potency to acquire. It cannot, privation I mean, cannot be numerically identical. While not common in this first sense, it is still possible to speak of privation, not surprisingly perhaps at this point, as common by predication. Because everything, as he explains, everything of which privation is predicated is the non-existence of some instance of what we have called form, in that which is capable of acquiring it, that is, in the material, end quote. The commonality of privation is thus bound up with form for Avicenna, as privation is understood as the absence of some form. It need not, however, be the absence of only a particular kind of form, such as the form of human, but the absence of any form whatsoever. This is because privation is commonly predicated of anything where there is a non-existence of form. Avicenna maintains then that physics does not consider causes that are common by causality, regardless of whether one is investigating agent, end, matter, form, or privation. Having spent the majority of physics of the healing one, two, and three, considering the possible commonality of matter, form, and privation, Avicenna presents a brief discussion of how they might be common by predication. As he explains, as for that which is common in the second of the two senses, the three principles are common to what is subject to generation and change, since it is common to all of these sorts of things that they all have matter, form, and privation, end quote. Such short shrift here in chapter three assumes his presentation in chapter two of what is meant by common by predication. Avicenna himself adverts here in chapter three to his earlier discussion of this distinction in chapter two. As he states, quote, our entire inquiry into an approach to form and its being a principle is strictly limited to its being a principle in the sense that it is one of the two parts of something that undergoes generation, not that it is an agent, even if it is possible that a form be an agent. Also, we have already shown that the natural philosopher does not deal with the efficient and final principles that are common to all natural things in the first way mentioned in the previous chapter. And so we should concentrate our efforts on the second way that the efficient principle is common to all natural things, end quote. Having eliminated matter and form as common by causality, Avicenna is able to quickly conclude that the matter and form that the natural philosopher is concerned with must be common by predication. In natural philosophy then, he is concerned with principles that are common, but only common in a certain way. As Avicenna reiterates, quote, our inquiry and discussion about the principles from this perspective, common by predication, and not the first one, common by causality, end quote. In sum, while the distinction between agents that are common by causality and by predication is of particular importance to Avicenna, given his metaphysical commitments, this is a distinction that is applicable to matter and form and privation as well. Thus, matter and form are common principles in nature in as much as they are predicable of all natural beings, 
and privation is common in as much as it can be predicated of all natural changes. Having presented the two way, uh, ways a cause can be common for Avicenna and its application to each of the causes, it is now possible to see the adoption of this distinction in the works of Thomas Aquinas. Thomistic adoption. The distinction of common causes appears throughout the works of Thomas, with reference found as early as his commentary on the sentences and continuing through his disputed questions de veritate and commentaries on the physics and the de trinitate. While he does not use it as Avicenna did, always to distinguish physics and metaphysics, Thomas nonetheless clearly recognized the clarifying value of this distinction and utilized it in a variety of contexts. In this work on the commentary on the sentences, Thomas uses the distinction first within the context of divine names, while asking whether qui est should be accorded priority, and second, within the discussion of beatitude as the ultimate end of human life. In treating divine names, he raises an objection that good should be given priority over being because there is a way in which good applies even to things that do not exist. In answering this objection, he employs the different ways a cause can be common, either by predication or by causality. He argues that good is not more common by predication, but rather by causality. He explains good is common by causality because, quote, the causality of the end extends even to those things which do not yet participate in form, because imperfect things desire and tend toward their end, end quote. In this way, good is more common inasmuch as its causality inasmuch as its causality extends even to not yet existent effects. Qui est is still accorded priority though, because this is more appropriate inasmuch as God is fully actual and lacking all non-existence. The second somewhat more extended use of this distinction in the sentence's commentary is in the context of presenting beatitude as the ultimate end of life. An objection is raised that beatitude, if it is a good, would have to be common but present life includes other animals who have their own respective ends. Therefore, it seems impossible for there to be one common beatitude. Thomas responds that a thing can be common in two ways, through predication, which is not the same in number as other instances, and through participation, which is of one thing in another. There can be a good that is common through predication, but different in kind, the good of a human, of a dog, or of a tree, for example. But beatitude is a good that is common by participation. The common good is the way in which individuals, quote, arrive at that which is the common good of all beings, namely God, end quote. Something that is common by predication, as used here, tracks the meaning of Avicenna's common through predication and common part participation. Uh, tracks the meaning of Avicenna's common through predication. And Thomas's use of common by participation corresponds with Avicenna's common by causality. The difference between common by participation and common by causality is not, I would argue, significant because participation is used by Thomas to describe the causal existential relation between God and creatures. And indeed, Thomas himself identifies the end that is common through participation as God. Thus, in the commentary on the sentences, Thomas is already seen to be using the division of common into predication and causality. This distinction reappears in his De Veritate within a discussion of the Vita Gloriae, that is, the end of a life of grace. An objection is raised that whatever is more common is more noble, but natural life seems to be more common than the life of grace, inasmuch as natural life continues even when one falls from grace. 
In responding, Thomas relies on the distinction between common by predication and common by causality. He explains that a thing can be common in two senses, through effect, that is, through, by, through causality, or by predication. Quote, a thing is said to be common in two senses. First, it is said to be common through effect or predication. That is, it is found in many things according to one intelligible character. In this sense, that which is more common is not more noble, but more imperfect, as animal is, which is more common than man. Now, it is in this sense that natural life is more common than life of glory. Second, a thing is said to be common after the manner of a cause. That is, it resembles a cause which, while remaining numerically one, extends to many effects. In this sense, what is more common is more noble. For example, the preservation of a city is more noble than the preservation of a family. In this sense, natural life is not more common than the life of glory." End quote. There are many things for Thomas that are common by predication, but only one that is common by causality in this context. The life of glory for Thomas is common by causality inasmuch as the life of glory is more noble than natural life and indeed is the end of natural life. It is not common by predication though because life can be said of more than just the life of glory. This division, not used to distinguish the principles of a science, is nonetheless in accord with the distinction outlined by Avicenna, just now transplanted to a different context. Thomas returns to the question of common principles while commenting also on Aristotle's physics. In Book 2, Chapter 3, Aristotle provided three pairs of causal, division, causal divisions and maintained that all six could be either actual or potential. He does not make the distinction that Avicenna later would before, between common causes that are common by predication or common by causality. Thomas, however, does introduce this to clarify further the meaning of universal proper and prior or posterior causes. As Thomas explains, quote, it must be noted, however, that the universal cause and the proper cause and the prior cause and the posterior cause can be taken either according to a commonness in predication as in the example given about the doctrine of the artisan, or according to a commonness in causality, as if we say the sun is a universal cause of heating, whereas fire is a proper cause, end quote. Thomas is here taking doctrine artisan from the Aristotelian text as examples of things common by predication, because there are many individuals about whom these things can be said, while an example of causes common by causality is the sun causing heat. In this way, Thomas applies the distinction from Avicenna to the text of Aristotle. Interestingly, in this passage, Thomas then shows how these two kinds of common cause can correspond and relate to one another. As he explains, causes that act by more universal forms and are thereby more commonly predicable extend to more objects and thus can be more universally causative. As he explains, quote, any power extends to certain things insofar as they share in one ratio, and the further that that power extends, the more common that ratio must be, end quote. This correlation of causes common by predication and, com and common by causality might seem at first to blur the careful distinction that we saw earlier with Avicenna, but the distinction is still present even when applied to the same singular cause. For example, an agent that is common by predication can be common by causality in some respect, such as doctor being the cause of many effects, though doctor is a term that is common by predication. The numerical oneness of a cause common by causality and the numerical multiplicity of a cause common by predication central to Avicenna's distinction are thus preserved. 
the association of a cause common by causality with God is also likewise present. Several paragraphs later, Thomas notes, quote, it follows that just as inferior agents, which are causes of the coming to be of things, must exist simultaneously with the things which come to be as long as they are coming to be, so also the divine agent, which, which is the cause of existing in act, is simultaneous with the existence of the thing in act. Hence, if the divine action were removed from things, things would fall into nothingness, just as when the presence of the sun is removed, light ceases to be in the air, end quote. In this way, while there can be causes that are common by causality yet are not God, Thomas recognizes that a metaphysical common cause must be. In sum, while Thomas uses the distinction drawn by Avicenna in a somewhat different way here in the physics commentary, namely to explain the way in which a cause can be common by predication and also common by causality, the terminology and association remain unchanged. Finally, in the De Trinitate commentary, we find the clearest use of this distinction. Discussing, discussing the division of sciences in question five, Thomas considers in article four, whether divine science, metaphysics, considers what exists without matter or motion. Clearly following Aristotelian methodology, as Avicenna himself did, Thomas explains that science is acquired through knowledge of principles, but principles can be taken in two senses either as complete beings that are principles of other beings, that is heavenly bodies being principles of lower ones or simple bodies being principles of complex ones, or as beings that are incomplete in themselves. For example, form and matter as principles of natural bodies. Principles are also divided according to whether or not they are common to a particular genus, or as Thomas puts it, are the principles of all beings. These principles common to all beings can be said in two ways. He explains first, quote, by predication, as when I say that form is common to all forms because it is predicated of all. Second, by causality, as we say that the sun, which is numerically one, is the principle of all things subject to generation, end quote. Thomas takes this distinction directly from Avicenna and openly attributes it to him. The example of a principle common by predication is form, something common to all forms because it is predicated of all. A principle that is common by causality is the sun, which is numerically one that is the principle of all things subject to generation. Still following Avicenna, the second kind of common principle, common by causality, is numerically one, while the first, what is common by predication, allows multiple beings. Principles that are common by causality are ranked by Thomas according to a definite graded order, such that the principles of accidents are reduced to the principles of substance, and perishable substances to imperishable ones. Yet, while there can be multiple causes that are common by causality in a sense, the principle of all beings must for him be, quote, be being in the highest degree, such that it is most perfect and supremely an act, because actuality is prior to, and more excellent than, potentiality, end quote. Expanding on Avicenna's original delegation of common causes to metaphysics, Thomas maintains that there are two ways that these principles, common by causality, can be studied. First, insofar as they are principles of being, and in this sense, they are studied by the metaphysician. And second, insofar as this common principle is a being in its own right, and this is the concern of the theologian. Thomas uses the precise distinction drawn by Avicenna in his Physics of the Healing, here in his commentary on the De Trinitate, while establishing the subject of divine science. 
the cause that is common by causality for both Avicenna and Thomas, inasmuch as it is the principle of beings, is the concern of metaphysics. While Thomas used the distinction between common causes in a variety of contexts in his other work, here in the De Trinitate, he returns to using the distinction to delineate the kind of cause of concern to a particular science, especially metaphysics and theology. Thomas thus employs and advances Avicenna's distinction. In conclusion, the purpose of the present study was to explore the distinction between the two ways a common cause can be common according to Avicenna and to investigate its implementation by Thomas. The distinction between causes that are common by predication and common by causality is only one of many distinctions drawn by Avicenna, but it is particularly important one because of its centrality in both physics and metaphysics. This distinction allowed Avicenna to distinguish the kind of common efficient cause that can be considered by natural philosophy and the kind that can be considered by metaphysics. Though of indispensable importance for efficient causality, this distinction was also applied by Avicenna to final material and formal causality. In so doing, he was able to clearly articulate the way in which physics is concerned with common principles, a needed task if one, is, if one wishes to explain, attain essential knowledge of natural things. Thomas Aquinas did not always use this distinction for the same purpose of Avicenna, but he nonetheless applied it throughout his writings and clearly adopted it from him. Seeing in this distinction a valuable tool for explaining various concepts, Thomas utilized this distinction in a various contexts while preserving its essential differences, most clearly as we saw in his commentary on the De Trinitate. Grasping this distinction thus allows insight into the thought of Avicenna and Thomas. Disagreements between Arab and Latin thought, of which Avicenna and Thomas are paragons notwithstanding, there is a deep and abiding correspondence in their distinct but mutual concern with attaining illum and scientia. Investigating the twofold division of common principles is one such example of this mutual concern and the collaborative nature of medieval philosophy. While each figure can, of course, be read in isolation, this would ignore the dialogue between these traditions and the explicit influence of one on another. If knowledge consists, as Avicenna and Thomas both themselves maintained, in grasping the causes and essential attributes of something, then there is strong warrant to return to their sources and developments. Those concerned primarily with Avicenna would do well to see the adoption and expansion of this central distinction by Thomas. Those concerned primarily with Thomas would surely benefit from focused attention on Avicenna. Thank you very much.